You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. My name is Steve Green, and I guess I'm that guy that requires uh, too many papers and too many uh, books to read, but uh, they're all good. Well, not the papers, the books. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, I am grateful that uh, our pastor uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, preach the gospel today. And uh, we're going to find that uh, gospel located in uh, a marvelous and interesting story, the story of Ruth. Uh, I would love for you to take your Bibles and open them to Ruth. We're going to have some... On the screens, we'll have from time to time a Bible verse. But if you do have your Bibles, open them to Ruth. Ruth is located, if you start back at the left side of the Bible, Genesis, and you start running forward, uh, you'll go through five books called the Pentateuch. Then you'll get Joshua, Judges, and you show up with Ruth. Ruth is only 85 verses, but it's powerful. And so I invite you to turn there this morning with me. Uh, We will be looking, I'm going to be reading this morning, a uh, text that is very, very familiar uh, with a lot of us. Uh, In fact, it's a text, two little verses that uh, is read at many uh, wedding ceremonies, uh, though it has absolutely nothing to do with weddings. Uh, But it's uh, cool two verses anyway. But we're going to look at those verses and we're going to run through the story of Ruth and look to explore what I have come to believe is the heart of the biblical message, a mystery called redemption. Redemption. Now before I read this text, uh, there are many times we walk out of a service of worship and uh, somebody will say, uh, well, what did the preacher preach about? And we'll go, I, I don't know, or it was interesting, but I really don't know. So what I want to do, I'm going to do something that I tell my students never to do. Is that all right? I want to tell you the conclusion, and then I'm going to come back. Now, clearly when you tell the conclusion, there's no reason to listen, but you may want to anyway. Here is what I'm trying to say. The mystery of redemption is not something that takes place in our minds or even our hearts. Redemption takes place concretely in our bodies. We are redeemed and we become redeemers in the concrete realities that we live. All right? That's the message. Now, for some of you that enjoy a nice Sunday afternoon nap, it's not quite noon, but uh, feel free, you've got the message. For the rest of you that uh, don't want to waste the next uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever this is, uh, engage with me. We're going to read these two verses, chapter 1, beginning with verse 16 and then read verse 17, and then I'm going to ask you to respond and uh, to the reading of the text, and I'm going to ask you then to remain standing with me as we ask a blessing 
over this text. Would you stand with me? And let's listen now to these words. Chapter 1 of Ruth, beginning with verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you, or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. And this is the word of God for the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Remain standing as I pray. Father, it's so obvious that uh, these words have great power. We put them in our wedding ceremonies. Uh, We seem to know these words, even if we can't locate the book of Ruth. And yet the power to shape and to transform our life is not possible unless you empower these words. I would ask today for that miracle to take place, that you would allow my words to be transformed so that you speak through them. I pray that our hearts would be open. And so we ask, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most uh, interesting uh, parts of my job is that I get to teach young people. Uh, I teach them all week long. I teach them about great mysteries, and sometimes it remains a great mystery after the teaching is completed. Part of what I do is I, I introduce words from time to time. Uh, words that are very, very familiar. Words like love or words like forgiveness or words like redemption, redeem, redeemer. Many of us, in fact most of us, think we know what those words mean. Love means that we have some kind of deep feeling or affection for another people, we say. Uh, Forgiveness means that we no longer hold a grudge against the other. Redeem. Redemption. Redeemer. We think that, that something has happened in God's heaven that keeps us safe for eternity. Now, as great as those definitions sound, None of them are biblical. The Bible doesn't seem to say that our love is about the affections or emotions of our lives. But it's something very concrete, something we do. St. Paul even says it this way, that this love of ours is to be extended to other people. Love is not simply an emotion. Forgiveness 
is not something that takes place in the consciousness of God. But forgiveness is something that happens to us that liberates us. And redemption is not something that takes place in God's heaven. But it takes place on God's earth. It takes place in bodies like you and like me. Now the book of Ruth is full of redemption stuff. Redemption, redemption, redemption. In fact, I want to introduce you to a little Hebrew word, all right? It's the last terribly technical thing I'm going to say. All right? All right, pinky promise. Uh, last technical thing. It's the word goel. I think we have it on, on the screen, uh, at least. Yeah, what do you know? Uh, goel. Goel's a noun. It means redeemer. There is also a verbal form of that, gogol. It is the word G-A-A-L, Gaal. And to Gaal is to redeem. So you have a Goel, a redeemer, and you have a Gaal, redemption or an act of redemption that takes place. What is so interesting about Ruth is that there is more of this talk in that book than all other books. In fact... In the 85 verses that make up this little tiny book, over 20 times this term, goel, is mentioned. So what is a redeemer? What is a redeemer? In in ancient Israel, uh, our uh, great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers of the faith... They believed that this word goel, redeemer, it it was translated in a variety of ways that you and I try to get a hold of it. For example, I mean, clearly it means redeemer, but most literally it means the next of kin. Now, let me give you a couple examples of what the next of kin would do. Let's say someone kills one of my brothers. All right? We're talking ancient Israel here, not, uh, you know, everybody ought to go to Sunday school. Uh, Someone kills one of my brothers. As the next of kin, the Goel, it is my job to run him down and to kill him. We translate Goel when it's used in that context as the avenger of blood. Is that not an intriguing word? Yeah? You know, uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, as the people are coming into the land for the very first time, they are designated these unique cities that one can flee to very, very quickly because sometimes the Goel would pursue someone, even if it was an accidental death, they would pursue this person so quickly they would overcome them and kill them. So they could go to these cities, these sanctuary cities, and if they could get inside that city, they would be safe. A Goel, a next of kin. That's one of the ways it's used. There's another way it's used, and that is this. A goel is someone, the next of kin, that, let's say one of my brothers, again, dies. And my brother did not have children. Again, we're talking uh, a people from long ago, long ago. They had some values that are incredible. They had a few practices that are a little different than ours. Let's say my brother's my brother dies and his widow is left and left without children 
a goel, a next of kin, would then take his wife into his own home as his wife. But in procreation, all of the children would, in a sense, be from my brother. That is a goel. Now, these folk did not believe in the resurrection like you and I believe. They believe when people die, they just went to this shadowy place called Sheol. It, it, was, a, it was a place with the good and the bad. Everybody would go. It was just a place. It was the place of the dead. So the way of keeping a person alive is by redeeming their life through the, the movement of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And so a Goel would do that. A Goel, or a Redeemer, would also, a next of kin, would step in if a person got into great financial difficulty. A Goel, someone close to them, could then provide resources to purchase for them food, land, whatever is needed to sustain their life. What I want you to see about a Redeemer is that a Redeemer does something in a very concrete way about our lives when they go very, very wrong. And the honest truth is, one cannot live an entire lifetime without life going very very wrong. You see, we're, we're just destined to get sick eventually and die, if nothing else. But life comes at us in all kinds of ways. Folk that we trust and rely on many times betray us. Folk that we trust and rely on many times die. Folk that, that somehow we find ourselves caught up in the institutions that make our lives meaningful, those institutions many times collapse. Life is hard. And so therefore, these ancient, ancient grandmothers and grandfathers of our faith understood that in the tough times of life, life is to be redeemed by a Redeemer. Now, what I want to do, I want to, I want to take you to the story of Ruth. Ruth is a very interesting person. She is both going to be, in this story, a redeemer as well as someone who needs to be redeemed. Ruth is the daughter-in-law of the other major character of this story, who is Naomi. Naomi means sweetness. Uh, it, it means that which is, is wonderful. Naomi's life goes so poorly that eventually she says her name needs to be changed to Mara, which means bitterness. So let's look at the story. The story goes like this. During the time of the judges, there was a Jewish family, a husband, a wife, Naomi, and two young sons. And a famine hit the land in a desperate way. 
Now, all Jewish people had their own little plot of land, but the famine was so severe that whatever the water supply was that sustains this family and allowed them to have some kind of economic or agricultural prosperity, it went away. And it was sustained famine and drought. So what these folk do after having sold their land, they migrate to the land of Moab. There, they establish their lives. They are, to use the language that we do in this country, uh, they are undocumented people. They are foreigners. They're outsiders. But there, this little Jewish family forges away its life. It works. The boys begin to grow And they grow up into young men, and as all young men, it seems, desire, they begin to desire women. Not women with nice little Jewish heritage. They like these Moab women. They must have been hot. So they went and they found wives for them. Each of the boys, one of the wives, was named Ruth. She was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She had other customs, other values, even another belief system at play for her. She wasn't a good Nazarene girl. She had never heard of good Nazarene girls. She's a Moabite. But they married, and something tragic happened in the ensuing years. The older couple, Naomi's husband, died. But Naomi still had these two young men. These two young men that were married and were forging away, attempting to get their life going and moving. They were, in a sense, one could call them her goels, her redeemers. They would provide for their mother. They would take care of their mother as well as their wives. But something happened. Both of these boys died. And so what you have in this story is you have a very desperate situation. You have an older woman who is past the age of childbearing, we're told. And you have these two younger women who were in the very beginnings of their life. Their families had not yet uh, come to flourishing. They were married and now they are widows. It was a desperate situation. Now, what is to take place in all of these kinds of settings is that a redeemer is to step in. What Naomi knew is that there was no redeemer possible for her. There was no next of kin that could come in and give her, and therefore her husband, sons, life. They were gone. And so in that sense of desperation, that's when she says her name should no longer be sweet or pleasant, but bitter and harsh, Mara. 
She then says to these two young ladies, go back home. That's the best thing for you. Go back to your father and mother's home. And there, they will then provide for you. They will give to you husbands. Go back home. Your lives will be okay. Children will be born to you. And there was nothing wrong in those suggestions at all. Both of the young girls cried out, Oh, no, we will not leave you. We will not leave you. Right? We will not leave for anything. And yet one of them does finally give in and goes home. But not Ruth. Ruth then utters the words that I read to you this morning, that we have in so many of our wedding ceremonies, right? Whether thou goest, I will go. Whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. In fact, I'll be buried in the very place you're buried. What I want to say to you is this, though that's not appropriate necessarily or fitting necessarily for a wedding ceremony, it is the call of a Redeemer. And what Ruth was saying is this, I will do what is necessary. I will never leave you, no matter what comes. I will do what's necessary for you to survive. Life was desperate. There was no land. There were no redeemers. These young ladies could not, they were not Harvard educated. My goodness, they weren't SNU educated. These young women didn't have businesses. They did not go to law school. They weren't in med school. They couldn't even own property. They were desperate. Now, here is the clue. And this might not really sound terribly Nazarene also. What Ruth was saying was this, because she only had two options open to her. I will do whatever is necessary, and here are the two options. I will beg, and if begging doesn't work, I'll become a prostitute. I will do whatever is necessary for you to survive. And so Naomi and Ruth leave Moab and go now to a land a land that is familiar to Naomi, but is strange and odd to Ruth. She is a foreigner. She doesn't fit. And there, she begins the task of providing resources for life for Naomi. She begins as a beggar. Now, ancient Israel, as quirky as some of these laws and practices are that they have, they were incredible people economically. And I mean by that, not that they knew how to make a buck. What they knew how to do was make sure that there were resources even for the poorest of the poor. And so when they would harvest their field, they would always leave the edges unharvested. The reason? was not because it was hard to harvest the edge. It's because you had the poor. 
And so the poor then could go into the edge, or the poor could even follow the harvesters and pick up some of the grain that was left behind. And so that's exactly what Ruth did when they arrived back in the land of promise. She would go field after field, and she would follow the harvesters. And what was left over, she would take and she would glean. She would bundle up and take and thresh it out and prepare a little morsel for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. An interesting and profound expression. One of the most amazing things that I think I I want you to see, though, is that what she was doing was embodied. What she was doing was not in her head. She wasn't saying to Naomi from a distance, well, I'll pray for you. The Lord will bless you. Right? Have you ever done that? I've done that too many times. Somebody tells me something desperate. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll be praying for you. What does that mean? You know, I think what that kind of means is this. We expect God to be like a pigeon flying overhead and dropping grace on us. Ooh, got some grace. Ooh, great. Ooh, grace. Ooh, a lot of grace. Uh, God is not a pigeon. And grace is not pigeon poop. In fact, God works through warm bodies. People like Ruth, later in the story, Boaz. Later in stories, maybe like your friend or your spouse or your colleague, maybe you. I I want to say to the guys up above, I think we're going to see a clip of something, and I'm going to jump ahead a couple uh, sections. One of the most intriguing novels written, I think it's like 1,500 pages. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, Victor Hugo's novel, Le Mis, right? Most of us can't tolerate reading 1,500 pages, so instead we go see the movie. I, I, it's a good movie, huh? Except when Russell Crowe kind of starts act singing. I mean, he just looks so stupid. But anyway, I like Russell Crowe. I, I have a clip, Lord willing, right? didn't work in the first service, but it might now. Right? <laughs> if the pigeon's flying. Uh, I have a clip when Jean Valjean, right, who had been in prison for years for stealing a loaf of bread, is now out, and he has to show papers to everyone that he's been in prison, and no one will give him a place to stay until he comes upon a bishop. And the bishop allows him to stay, and Jean Valjean, does something horrendous, and yet redemption begins in this. I want you to see it, Lord willing.
Is anybody there? I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I have my eye on this man. Oh, thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry! Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him! You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. It's an intriguing piece, isn't it? As you know, with that particular story, it begins story after story and episode after episode of redemption. Jean Valjean becomes a redeemer himself throughout the whole of the story. You see redemption. You say, well, the, the bishop lied. The bishop redeemed. Redemption is the heart of the biblical story. It's Jesus touching the untouchables. It's Jesus including the unincludables. It's Jesus having friendships with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. Not to redeem them in some kind of vault in heaven, would redeem them in the concrete activities of their life. Redemption. So it was with Ruth's story. An intriguing story. 
she runs into a man who is, in a sense, the next of kin. Boaz. At the end of the day, Boaz makes her his wife. But his wife that will redeem the very first husband of Ruth. In fact, even more than that, we're told at the end of the book that will redeem Naomi's husband. She herself has a goel. We see this in the activities of our lives, day in, day out. Friends being there when someone is in desperate need. Maybe stepping in when a person has overextended themselves, sometimes with their finances, sometimes, honestly, with substance. Sometimes with activities that, that, on the whole, bishops and Nazarenes alike go, oh no. And yet, redemption goes to places that we would never imagine. It goes and it says words like this, whether thou goest, I will go. Whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The very place where you're buried, I'll find myself buried. I, uh, I have three brothers. I love them like crazy. I, uh, I, I talk to one of them. I don't know. I talk to all three of them every week, but I talk to one of them, it seems like, almost every other day. I just, we talk all the time. Uh, we're close. There, there are probably all kinds of reasons we're close. I think our just genealogical makeup, you know, green family's close. Part of it, though, is a little over 30 years ago, our dad died. He died the day after he turned 52. And to some of you, that seems old. To some of us, it seems really, really young. He died while in the process of being a Nazarene pastor. Back in that particular period of time, Nazarene pastors didn't make anything. And he left two of his four boys still at home and a wife. My mom was a young woman. She did not have a home, parsonage. And so she had to get out of it pretty quickly. She had no real resources. So she worked like crazy. In fact, the honest truth is she worked until she was 75 full-time. But something happened to my mother. Someone stepped in. Now, now before I tell you, I need to tell you what I value and love the most. Oh, man, almost four decades ago. I know I look too young for this. I met a beautiful red-headed woman or a girl. I fell madly, crazily, wildly in love with her. And we have lived together now as husband and wife. 
for a long time. God gave us two beautiful kids. They are the pride of my life. My daughter, my son, they were fortunate. God's grace gave them two awesome spouses, Brandon and Morgan. And the best news is he gave both of those couples the most beautiful grandbaby girl for me in the world. Now, I'm sure they enjoy her, both of them, but the honest truth is those little girls were made for me. I am crazy about them. It, it, is, it is the thing that makes my life go. It really is. Now, back to the story of my mother. If I, if I had my life and I could aim it any direction, I would say, grow old with the same woman, have awesome kids, be with them, and be around my grandchildren. That would be it. Not write books, not even teach, not preach. Just that would be it. That would be more than enough. One of my young brothers, name's Tim, early 50s now. My, my, my brother Tim has been all over the world. He probably preaches in more places than anybody I know. He's all over Europe all the time, all over North America. They bring him in from everywhere. The reason is because he's incredible. Tim is single. He's chaplain at Trevecca. He's the dean of their school of theology at Trevecca, and he teaches Old Testament. He's a writer, a speaker. But what he is more than anything, he is the son that is redeemed to Laura Screen. And it's not because we haven't tried as a group of brothers and family. We have played Cupid for him more than you can ever imagine. And it seems like young women have just lined up across the last few decades of his life attempting to become Mrs. Green. But Tim pretty much dedicated his life to caring for our mother. Now, she's an independent woman. Hopefully, she won't listen to this sermon because she probably wouldn't like it. But Tim is the one who has taken her all over the world. She's been to places that I can only imagine. She has traveled with him across this entire planet. Tim has taken care of our mother. When she purchased a house and was so proud of it, Tim bought a house across the street. Why? <laughs> he keeps an eye on our mother. He cares for her. He takes her out to eat. He makes life special for her. In those moments when the rest of us forget, he never forgets. Tim has been a Goel, a Redeemer. Last week he called me and he said, Steve, if it's okay with all the brothers, he said, I'm thinking about moving. 
thought, first thought, what in the world's going to happen to mom? I mean, she's an 80-some-year-old lady. What in the world's going to happen with mom? He said, uh, what I've decided to do is build a really large house. And uh, in the master suite area, uh, I thought maybe mom would just stay there. Mom could have that. He said, there are plenty of places in this house for me. He said, I'll just do whatever. He said, it's going to be great. Is, Is that okay with you? Whether thou goest, I will go. Whether thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And where they bury you, And next to my dad's grave is my mother's little place and a spot for Tim. Redemption is an interesting thing, isn't it? It costs us a lot. It cost him the warmth of a spouse, the joy of watching children grow and succeed, the laughter of grandchildren. I only hope that my children and my nieces and nephews will all remember that there will come a time when Tim himself will need to go well. When we make redemption too religious, we haven't made it religious enough. For you see, all of life is sacred. It permeates with grace. It is about life. It is about going to places and restoring hope. There have been a lot of saints in the world. Clearly, the Lord Jesus, the greatest of all. But probably next to him, the greatest saint, way more than St. Paul. He was a a psycho case. And sure more than St. Peter. I mean, he was so wishy-washy up and down, even after Pentecost. Almost useless. The greatest saint, at least in my mind, there's a little saint named St. Francis. And I thought about how in the world can we end this service? Will we sing? Do I ask you to commit something? And I don't want to because you just commit it in your head and that doesn't mean anything. I, I want you to do something with your hands. I don't really care about your heart. Get your hands busy and your heart will follow. Listen to these words, and then I want you to pray with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. 
O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Would you like to pray that with me? Stand with me, would you? We'll pray this together, and I'll pronounce a benediction upon us, a blessing, and then we will be dismissed. Let's read together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And say, no, so Naomi's life was redeemed. And through the union of Boaz and Ruth, a lineage started. It passed through a young boy named Jesse. And then it passed through another, his son, David. Matthew's genealogy says it well. And it continued to pass and pass and pass and pass and pass until in the fullness of time, our Savior was born. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his grace. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.